0: what are you wearing today
1: dude let's not talk about it (laughs) somehow i I was dressed exactly the same we'll share in
0: the discord photo of eugene and our friend jerry dressed honestly like head to toe the same outfit
1: like and also similar haircuts yeah the outfit is like relatively short but not too short above the knee shorts
0: and like a button down. it's You know, there black. was like a little bit of distinction. It. It's not just like a tee. The fact that you both wore like a short sleeve button down black top is a little bit. And
1: both wore like.
0: Coincidental.
1: Blackish muted technical sneakers. Yeah,
0: yeah. That too.
1: And had like shoulder length long hair.
0: Wavy. Partially wavy long hair. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Does it make you want to change up your look? No. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Making, which is original storytelling at its purest. Through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
1: Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
0: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us.
1: Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for access to our Discord, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's go. Do you dress the same? In real life as you do in the gaming world.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. I was like... Where would you think that was going? versus what? I don't know. At home? Like, what was... Okay, real Your life... Your Animal
1: Crossing characters is dressed a little yeah, bit differently, no, though. no,
0: no, I dress much more
1: trendy or... But why? Why is that?
0: Okay, one...
1: It's free. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. That that's was a, my number one big, thing.
0: So the video games I play and the clothing I buy don't cost me real world money, yeah. which is why I feel you know, quite liberated to buy loads of in-game outfits and change my outfits all the time where he's like, there is a sustainability aspect. Yeah.
1: I definitely in dress the real differently life. in games. I have no more idea how, we, we play none of the same
0: games. so I don't know what you dress like. No. Should we get into it? Let's do it. You first or me? I think you, I think yours is the big one. If we're going like first topic is the meaty one.
1: All right. My topic this week is what makes a museum object NFT valuable beyond the scope of the technology? And this piece is by Francis Little, who looks into how we begin to reevaluate our way of seeing digital objects and things and the value behind them. Because traditionally, museums obviously are in the realm of presenting physical objects, right? And I think that this is something that's worth discussing in a broader discussion, because I think that in the last months or whatever, since NFTs really sort of took hold in the, into the mainstream consciousness, there's a lot of debate around its value. Sure. Like a lot of people are lo- obviously looking at NFTs as a JPEG or a, a .mov file.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of skepticism. Yes. And a lot of critique, which I think is fair. You know, it's something new. There should be critique. There should be some... Measure of questioning, of what yeah. type of usage
1: provides the most value. For the most part, NFTs right now equate to crypto art, right? It hasn't really in moved the past, popular perception. Yeah, like it hasn't really moved past that yet into no, other opportunities. I don't think so.
0: But that's not like the sole meaning of the word. Correct,
1: correct. So I mean, NFTs in theory are anything that can be uniquely identified, right? Yes, That's what the non-fungible element of it means. It means that, for example, I can issue an NFT concert ticket, right? And obviously that ticket itself equates to a particular seat in the theater or in the stadium or whatnot. So that'd be an example, like going forward of different ways of using NFTs beyond just like crypto art. Sure. But I think that this passage is probably the best way of describing and setting up the piece uh, museums are important spaces. They are stewards of culture and history. They provide interpretation, understanding, education, entertainment and can even support stronger communities and social cohesion. Therefore, I think it is important that museum object NFTs are more than commodities to be bought and sold. They should offer more than simply monetary value. Based on the premise, I want to consider the following. What makes a museum object NFT valuable beyond the application of blockchain technology? So, it's apparent not apparent that trying to spin the wheels a go in a place that's beyond just the speculative nature and obviously this is kind of where we're at right now like most people are buying things based on speculation in the hopes that it'll rise in yeah value
0: yeah so i think my understanding of premise is value not in the sense of financial value you know as in how can this make museums more money Mm -hmm. but how could this be valuable for a museum's greater mission and purpose of sharing art to other people and having the regular public engaging with the art that is part of your collection. And create
1: better experiences, right? So I I
0: think this is really interesting. Do you remember this conversation we had maybe a couple months ago on making it up about how museums, you know, they had been financially hit by the pandemic because they couldn't have visitors. And so a lot of people, a lot of museums were moving their collections around mm -hmm. and letting go, like selling parts of it. And then this article we were reading, which I think was in Artnet, was about how, museum collections are actually so vast and a lot of museums struggle to actually show a a significant portion of it to Mm -hmm. the public or Mm -hmm. like get the public engaged with more than like 5% of what they have. So I think that's like a context for like this piece as well.
1: So one, one thing she did want to speak about was a project that she launched in 2020 in which participants were told to bring an object of personal importance and they would also have them choose an object they really appreciated or enjoyed from the museum collection itself. Mm. So from there, they would then tokenize the museum piece and then gift it to the participant. So the hope there is that you're starting to create deeper bonds and also allowing people to like commit an experience or a piece of content to the NFT. Mm. So it's like a memory, right? Basically yeah. that's what you're doing. You're creating a memory. And I think that the the part that is really interesting here is that At its very core, this begins to move beyond the viewing of an NFT as just like a a financial asset. It's actually a tool for creativity and culture, which I think ultimately has been probably the space that those who maybe have been around NFTs a little bit longer, they're a little bit more custom and understand the technology to a degree that allows you to expand beyond what it's currently used for.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think of it along the same lines as... The way you might consider other previous types of new tech like ar or vr or even if you think about like qr codes when they were first introduced i know it's a simple thing to say but like qr codes when they first introduced people were like we have no idea how to apply this but then eventually you figure out okay in the context of this project actually this is a tool so nfts are like that like it can be a tool for your project at hand
1: yeah yeah and i'm going to read another passage uh from francis my work takes a participatory design approach, which fosters a more democratic model to the development process by working with participants and co-creating content, and this enables individuals to embed their voice into the project. In doing so, this shifts a museum visitor from being a passive viewer to an active participant, whilst also creating content exhibitions and interpretations that feel more relevant to museum audiences. Participatory approaches also leverage shared authority as cultural institutions need to relinquish some of its control over the process of design or interpretation, although this process of sharing control often remains problematic. Nevertheless, this is value in taking such an approach because it encourages participants to invest in both the project and the cultural institution, and this has the potential to harness a greater sense of belonging and produce content that is more resonant than the current and often singular narratives told through museum collections. You're basically co-creating as a community, right? And I think I actually, we've talked about this a lot because the idea of empowering community to achieve a goal has its pros and cons. I think on the pro side, I think in the very romantic notion, it's an amazing idea because it allows a more democratic platform to exist. However, where it does fall off the rails a little bit is that if there's no concentrated point of view and it just becomes a mismatch of everything, right? Yeah,
0: sure. Sure. I mean, later on, just a couple of paragraphs below the phrase co-production, kind of the same thing as co-creation. Yes. So co-production of NFTs to create meaning. And what I really like, Little says, for museum object NFTs to have a difference between NFTs that are just commodities in the space, there must be layers of interpretation and perspective. Whether that's coming from the museum as like a institution interpretation or if it's coming co-produced with participants
1: one thing that is really interesting is that when you do this i think what you're doing is you're creating a different type of value because it's kind of like if i have a book signed by the author but it's addressed to me myself that in itself might not be valuable when i go and put it out on the open market to the same extent as me as the person who met the author yeah so i think what you're doing is like you're not necessarily creating less value is just a different type of value that actually is maybe more, as you said, resonant to the person who created it.
0: It's more specific.
1: More specific. Yeah. Which I think is actually incredibly important because it's like the fact that your institution empowered you to have this experience creates really deep bonds and ties.
0: Yeah. I really like that distinction between something that could have market value, a lot of value to a lot of people. So the book just being signed by the author on the cover just the signature versus the author signing it to Eugene or even with a message mm-hmm. in it to you. That yeah. That's a good different difference to make.
1: Yeah. Cause there, there's been a lot of, I don't want to call it discussion, but it's just like, I think it's always in, in the sort of ongoing cultural discussion as of late on how to value things. It's because of the overt final financialization of the world around us in yeah. a way. Like, you know, there's some articles that were shared whether it's like the YOLO economy one, right? That was shared in the New York Times by Kevin Roofs, which talked about how people are nowadays are just going and taking relatively risky bets in hopes of providing themselves more freedom, making a ton of money. There's also this belief or understanding that everything we do now is financialized. It's like NFTs, sneakers that used to be a cultural thing are now a means to make money through reselling.
0: I mean, we talk right.
1: about we talk about this a lot.
0: We talk about this in so many different ways. I think the passion economy, as well, is essentially on this subject yeah. to everyone's ability to have their own Substack or Patreon is a financialization yeah. of everything. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And I think what's also interesting, I think th- this actually is a great tangent because we recently had a really amazing two hundred dollar contribution from. uh, Kevin T.
0: He messaged us. It was unexpected. And thank you so much to Kevin. It was an unexpected increase in financial support to our Patreon. And then I checked our messages and he left a note that said, don't thank me, man. Thank Doge Profits. Which obviously it is thanks to him that he chose to give it to us. But I thought it, it comes from him having...
1: For, I, I think over the course of the last few months, like there's been a lot of discussion around the valuation of NFTs and Dogecoin. But at some point, there was an agreed-upon relationship between two things, right? The currency that you're trading. So I think that that's what's most interesting is that controversy around the valuation of something, in theory, isn't as controversial as you think because it's actually quite clear. You you kind of brought it down to this this relationship between two things.
0: I think people are adjusting to wrapping their minds around things like Doge and NFTs because the the value linking is not as apparent. And it yep. reminds me again of GME, of GameStop. Yep. Because that was an instance where the stock valuation had nothing to do with what the company itself was doing. I'm just using this as an example of other things in the world. And... I guess it's just having to relearn in our own minds, like where value can come from. Yeah. And who can determine, you know, something is valuable. It doesn't just have to come from the same types of places and institutions that have said things are valuable in the past.
1: I think in many ways, that valuation process is actually more straightforward because you can almost just default to what someone will pay for something is the value. Regardless of whether it's one person or thousands of people, because that comes down to, for example, an opportunity where someone's offering you a job, but you don't want to take it. So obviously there's value in your freedom versus taking a job. Right. But I think that what I'm trying to say with this whole thing is that I think we're continually, I think there's something that makes people uncomfortable when something that seemingly has no value has achieved a certain value. that makes sense? Right, where people don't understand how something's valued because i think the unknowns are, are things that end up kind of seeping into the conversation and make people question is this a scam where's the validity around it mm. right so i think that what what I, I think is important in this conversation with museums is that the quicker they can move away from nfts as an asset or a thing to be bought and sold it's actually a form of experience creation right and memory Commitment. I don't know. Like I don't even know. I like that word. Yeah.
0: You know, museums have been trying to get out of the same format of presenting collections for a long time. You know, we say museum, and I'm sure so many people in the world imagine big rooms with things on the walls or things on tables, like physical things. And museums have been trying to get past that. I think, or like forward thinking museums, and I think NFTs is one way to do that. Is to see what other forms of presentation and engagement is possible. And actually, I, I hadn't really thought about NFTs in museums, but one thing that Little says, which I think is genius, is that museum objects you usually can't touch. You can only look at them. Mm-hmm. They are physical objects, but you are not allowed to touch them. And people will, you know, yeah. there are guards that say you can't. But with NFTs, that r- removes that barrier
1: mm-hmm.
0: and kind of allows for other possibilities.
1: There's this next quote that I want to read uh, by Simon Nell. Clearly, the authority and credibility of the digitizing institution will play a critical role in validating digital data, just as it does in preserving and relaying data associated with material objects. So, this kind of goes back to my previous point because in reality, like Dogecoin went from a couple cents to at its peak, like let's say 70 cents, right? Because of validation from some people, which gave you the confidence or people the confidence to enter the market, right? whether it was Elon Musk, whoever. Right? So I think what's also interesting when we turn back to this idea of a museum is that in an increasingly democratic world, we've actually seen people like museums, like fashion editors actually give up some power, right? Because they were once the gatekeepers. But what this is actually arguing for is that through the function it provides, it's creating a signal for validation.
0: Well, I think of it as, I don't think of it as gatekeeping. I kind of think of it as the FDA or whatever the equivalent is in your own country. Like the body that checks that the meat is.
1: Or the drugs are yeah, the, safe for you. The, the drugs
0: are safe. The vaccines safe for you, et cetera. The meat and vegetables don't have weird chemicals in it. Like that's not something I can do for myself as a individual person. I have no lab. And I think about the museum and NFTs in the same way. Like they can validate something that me as an individual can't do or I'm not interested in doing. And it's, well, you do have to trust them. But at the same time, I don't know if I'm being naive, but I would put my trust. I'd be willing to put my trust in museums to do that process. Yeah.
1: It's interesting because amidst the whole digitization of our world, there's still a lot of value and credibility that comes with something physical. Because I think the reason why is that ultimately anything physical because of its lack of efficiency signals a greater commitment and that it's, it's actually trying to signal to people and participants that this, because it's not the most efficient, convenient way, there's merit to it. Whether it's a print magazine, whether it's a physical shop versus an online shop there's something to be said about it. And I think museums, while yes, I'm using museums in the context of a physical form right now, they basically are adding various layers in to create something that signals to you that, Hey, this is a stamp of approval from whatever the MoMA, right? Cause I think ultimately towards the end of this piece, what they're saying is that the validation from these institutions is part of the valuation that can be ascribed to an NFT going forward. So without the museum as the one that's issuing it, you potentially lose out on this level of trust.
0: I thought about that same question of people's natural reaction to physical versus digital. And Little mentions that as well, and how museum visitors will have to be convinced about digital experiences mm-hmm. and i was thinking it's because we've grown up consuming digital things quickly but doesn't have to be that way mm-hmm. it culturally we do that like we're on the internet and we just scroll super fast through twitter and things like that but my counterexample is actually video games because that's a digital experience mm-hmm you have on your screen. You are interacting with the controller, which is a physical object, but actually the entire experience is not a thing you can touch. Yeah. You're not actually going to a place and doing and, you know, being part of an activity. But people have very deep memories and resonant experiences in video games because you have to do them slowly. Yeah. There is no way to shortcut to the end.
1: Yeah, I remember Bezod who mentioned this before, it's like a very deliberate way of going through things commits it to memory a bit better. Yeah. The same thing, shooting a photo on your phone versus shooting with a physical camera.
0: So I don't think the nature of digital has to be fast. You just have to create an experience that forces people to mm-hmm. do it intentionally Yeah. and slowly.
1: Yeah. There's a last passage I want to read that I think really ties together the whole idea of this participatory design participatory approaches engaged in the production of personal and social value in museums and blockchain could add a new layer of value to this process by creating ownable and more personal digital objects which is kind of what i mentioned before right it's like it's might be signed and addressed to you personally which creates value versus like oh this is this is addressed to someone else and i've taken ownership of it Meanwhile, museums could also play a critical role in adding a new layer of authenticity in the NFT space because these institutions could use their authority as authenticators of culture to embed trust and authenticity into digital artwork, thereby creating a store of value in NFTs that cannot be gained from using blockchain alone. As such, the cultural institution and blockchain technology are both authenticators and could interplay with one another in the digital space to create more meaningful and trusted digital cultural objects. So I guess, I guess in short... I th- the- that's the one thing that I I believe is sort of the the next iteration of, of NFTs is this social layer. And to use some examples is like, let's say you go to the MoMA and every new exhibition they have gives you the opportunity to create your own experience, collect them. And then by virtue of having kind of this open social graph of like, oh, I know Charisse has collected uh five NFTs from the last seven shows, she is a MoMA super fan, right? That itself could also provide a level of loyalty and reward to you. Right? Yeah. So your ownership of that could signal to MoMA. And it's like, yes, it could be a marketing play, but also it's just a way to reward you. Maybe it's like, hey, you get another NFT, you get a T shirt, whatever. So I think there's a lot of interesting things at play there that could potentially continue to enhance this.
0: Can you explain to me why it's easier to do this now with NFTs as a tool versus a like mu- single museum like the MoMA coming up with something on their own that is that kind of structure?
1: You mean in, in terms of the MoMA creating its own blockchain? Is that your question?
0: I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I suppose the question is like is. Is it true that the technological place we're at with blockchain and NFTs means that more museums can readily do this versus if MoMA, you know, like five years ago had this idea, something similar, mm-hmm. and wanted to create something for themselves? Does, does that yeah, question make no, sense? It, it makes
1: sense. I think there's a couple things at play. I think the, the cultural consciousness around NFTs is at an all-time high. Sure. right i think that technology has caught up to a degree and you know i think that a few months ago the big discussion was around the environmental impact of nfts right yeah. and i think that yeah. obviously with proof of work with ethereum you're definitely going to have those issues but i think you're seeing a lot of scaling solutions come out onto the market right like one thing you have now is you have a lot more scaling solutions that allow for low cost minting so while yes there is the argument around the energy impact of proof of work i think you're also seeing other options emerge now that make it a little bit more straightforward to mint more affordable nfts mm. so for example in the past it might have cost you let's say 50 bucks us to mint something that might be much a much more reduced cost now mm. and then i think also the wallet experience is actually quite important i think wallets have progressively gotten better in terms of how you use them mm-hmm. so that also makes your user experience better so i think you have several different things coming at a head that allow this to be possible, Yeah, that maybe were not possible back then. Mm Because I I would say that in general, we're probably still in this early phase where, like I said, crypto art and NFTs are sort of tied to one another, but there are other things kind of like this museum thing. Like, I think one thing that's important too is like thinking about, a blockchain that also allows you to commit content to it
2: mm.
1: without bloating it down.
2: Mm.
1: Right. So I think that's also part of like all the options available that may not have been available, let's say two years ago or three years ago. So I think there's like a, a, both social factors as well as technological factors. Okay, cool. Yeah. I like that. So I think ultimately that what I would like to see going forward is that everything they said was interesting. Can you create, Tokenized experiences that you can keep as you, Charisse, going to the MoMA, going to wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, what are other ways that you can leverage that into more of this participatory layer? So that could be, for example, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along, but because you have proven to be a big fan of MoMA, you can now have a say in which artists they bring in. Or maybe they have a $25,000 grant. They want to find a way to apply it to something that will benefit the museum. And there's three options. Which of those options do you want to participate in?
0: Mm. I'm more interested in a educational element, uh, thinking more about the workshop where you brought in a personal object and then you also picked like an object from the museum that was related to what you brought in or mm-hmm. connected to some way. I like this idea of NFTs not just like you're saying, allowing you access and a voice in the institution, but also being a vehicle for how you might relate to specific parts of the collection. Mm -hmm. Whereas otherwise it's like, oh, just something that is more at a remove. I just look at it and forget about it. Now I have like, for whatever reason, some relationship to this spas or this yeah. tapestry. I think that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Should we move on?
0: Let's do it. Yeah. I came across this blog post. It is by Mateus Urbanowitz, who is an animation creator, illustrator, artist, living and working in Tokyo, Japan. I'd first come across his work, I think, in a bookstore. Actually. Oh, interesting.
1: That's such a weird way of coming across someone's work these days.
0: No, it's very old school. I I think maybe like two years ago. Usually it's
1: like, I came across it on Instagram, you know? Yeah. Pinterest.
0: I remember this quite clearly because I was browsing with a friend and Stanley and my friend happened to point out this book and said, oh, I feel like that's like your vibe type of art. And I said, yeah, I should look that person up. I didn't actually wind up buying the book. Apologies to Urbanoitz. Um, but I did wind up following his work and coming across this blog post. So his blog is titled Art Versus Entropy, which I also like as a title.
1: I love that it's on a blog spot or something, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's on a WordPress. Yeah, it's it's on a WordPress. artvsentropy.wordpress.com.
1: I don't know why those get to me because I, I love the fact that it's just, it's literally Leveraging the very sort of early stages of free publishing. Yeah. Do you know that, what I mean? That's what it
0: is. It's back when people had blog spots. I had a blog spot.
1: Yeah. I my, did too.
0: My what was your blog spot called? Forget. Mine was I was called... like literally
1: like 20.
0: Well, me too. I wonder if
1: I could find it. I'm Actually you
0: not... do. I wonder if mine's up as well. Now we're both gonna go back in time to look at our old um blog spots. Keep you guys posted. It must still be around. Anyway, so this post is called Keeping the Line Alive. And Essentially, he's talking about the type of artwork that he aims for being what he describes as loose. And he says the opposite of that would be stiff or lifeless, which is not the type of feeling Mm. in his work that he tries. That's what he tries to avoid in his work, right? And he wants it to look loose or feel loose. And so he goes further into that because he says, you know, people ask me what I mean when I say loose. And so... I'm attempting this post to like say that in more detail. And what I liked about this in particular was his observations on how things around us are not perfectly straight. We, as humans, t- try to make everything look super ordered or like our eyes kind of do that for us. Like we're drawn towards making things like very symmetrical or imagining that like, this room is like a perfect square. But in actuality, Things around us, what he says is like, okay, everything, first of all, is not perfectly straight. But if you look more closely, like this arm has a bend in it, you know, it's not just angular or there's a knob that sticks out and Mm -hmm. that breaks the straightness of the line as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I like those observations, um, not just about how to draw something, but like looking more closely at the objects around us. Um, But he goes further and says, I'm gonna read a passage from it. When drawing in even the most simplified style, I'm always trying to capture all this information, the texture, warmth, wear, touch of an object in just a few lines. This is very involving and requires full attention and concentration when making each stroke. When left to their own devices, the hand and pencil will usually make only the most basic strokes. So a constant conscious effort is required to put as much of the information into each line as possible. Skip down a little bit. This might seem counterintuitive. Aren't the marks that are made in free, inspired strokes, done without a single thought, guided by the muse, so to speak, the most alive, won't focus and concentration, make them slow and ugly? And I think this is true, not just about drawing, but creativity in general. Basically, he's arguing for... Being creative very consciously, rather yep. than loose. Well, but he's aspiring for loose. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, like, but he's by just, doing it consciously.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get your rather point. Rather than
0: like being in a kind uh, of like, I don't know, because what I think, he said, like taken by a muse. Yeah, right? like ultimately, kind of state like a flow state. He argues against that. Like the flow state will actually result in more rigidity.
1: Yes. Yeah, and I think that rigidity, especially in this point in time feels as though that level of perfection is inhuman in a mm. way it's sterile it's robotic versus now i think that the interest is about relatability of the moment and it's so interesting because you look at where we were towards the beginning of instagram people loved those very technical perfectly lit perfectly edited photos. Yeah. And it's not that they don't like them, but I think now you're also seeing that maybe people's desire for perfection was primarily based on the fact that the medium wasn't there to support it. Because I think TikTok is a great example of something now that is not perfect, yet it is arguably way more popular and engaging.
0: Yeah. One thing I like that you said is that idea of perfection and. I think what Matthias is saying here is that actually being really conscious about what you're doing brings about perfection in a way, like the perfection that you want.
2: Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: capturing more exactly the visual that you want. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's, it's I, su- superficially, it doesn't make sense, but once you sort of like wrap yeah. your head around it. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then he... Quotes a documentary about Hayao Miyazaki, who is the the I don't even know how to give him adequate praise. The man behind Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle and Princess Mononoke. No, 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 the the animated movies. Oh, you're talking about the someone... Japanese Totoro. Oh you yeah, know Right, classic. All those is Miyazaki he, movies.
1: What animal is he? He's
0: not a cat. He's a he's not an animal. He's like not a known animal. He looks animal. like an animal though, right? He looks like an animal. Okay, this is not where I thought. All right. He looks like <laughs> an animal. In Chinese, we call Hong Mao, which is like panda, yeah. I guess. But not the point. Anyway, he quotes this documentary with Miyazaki. And this is a passage again from Mateus's post. As an example, Miyazaki draws a simple Japanese letter saying that if he is not conscious of what he is doing, his hand draws automatically. The letter ends up looking ordinary, dull, and expressionless. Next, he draws a second letter where, as he says, he tries to consciously fight with his hand to make a more exciting and varied shape. The second letter ends up more on the loose side, but undeniably has more character.
2: Yeah,
0: And I think the use of the word fight is quite interesting here, where it's like you reach a level of doing creative work where your brain subconsciously create like he says automatically automatically does the same thing and like as creative people being able to do things automatically is sometimes to our benefit right i'm not going to deny that if you can produce work automatically you get paid more quickly
1: but the automation is a byproduct of a lot of inputs on the back end that happens over time experience etc and
0: it's not to say that automation is like wholesale bad but it is the nature of automation is that things will look the same, right? So if you're trying to get back to something that is like not the same, you have to fight against y- your own automation, like yeah. all of these inputs throughout the many years of you doing something.
1: I, I don't know if you've recalled over the course of our last conversation or just in general for as long as you've known me, I think that a lot of your success as a creator is how well you manage yourself. because. Mm. Everything that you've discussed right now feels like a self-management challenge. It's not about how the people outside perceive your work because ultimately I think creative work falls into this very interesting silo where if there is no existing if there's no existing sort of benchmark, then it's really up for determination to the outside world. So obviously if you create something that someone else has seen, your benchmark against that Mm. so now i think that there's the real challenge is how do you create work you're personally satisfied with and do it consistently which is half the battle and the other battle is obviously if people you know get behind your work but in general i think most people struggle is it comes down to like a lot of these these uh challenges that face creators a lot of them are internalized Mm. like this whole like imposter syndrome that's an internalized thing. It's not someone telling you you're not good enough. Yeah. Right? So ultimately that's kind of where where it lies is that yes, it's a tool for limitless inspiration, passion and drive, but at the same time it's it's instilled upon oneself.
0: Yeah. So I think this is a great point for me to jump to something totally different. I don't even think I said this to you. This is something else that I happen to watch like the day or around the same day that I read this post. And it's like a two minute clip of an interview with quite a well-known designer named Saul Bass. Saul Bass was a really famous American graphic designer and he did a lot of really famous opening title sequences for, I was about to say movies people have probably seen except not the person across from me, Eugene like movies by Hitchcock and Kubrick and Scorsese. and Those
1: names register, okay?
0: Yes, he did title sequences for them, even if you haven't seen them. And he also did at ts Globe logo, among other really well-known logos as well. Anyway, all of this is just to say that there is this two-minute clip of an interview with him where he says the following, and I'm going to read quite a bit of it at length. What I'm saying is that aesthetics are your problem and mine and nobody else's. The fact of the matter is that I want everything we do that I personally do that our office does to be beautiful. I don't give a damn if the client understands that that's worth anything or whether the client thinks it's worth anything or whether it is worth anything. It's worth it to me. It's the way I wanna live my life. I wanna make beautiful things even if nobody cares. Now, sometimes you can't make everything beautiful, but that's my intent and I'm willing to pay for it. And that's where money comes in because you can get much more quickly to an answer if you don't worry about those things. It costs every designer money to make things beautiful because it means you have to spend more time. You're eating up your budget, but that's a commitment that you either make or you don't make. He goes on. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, you were saying about self-management and Sol is talking about recognizing the difference between like what you want and you're willing to commit your time and money to versus what other people want and what they care about
2: mm.
0: and it just i don't know it just worked along the same lines in my head with what Mateus wrote in terms of like consciousness i think ultimately like that's my subject yeah. i guess is just like consciousness in your creative work
2: mm-hmm.
0: what are you doing when you're making this visual like how much of this is automatic and why is it automatic
1: do you feel like you have reached a state?
0: I find myself now having done a lot of work. So I do think, I don't know. I wish more things felt fresh to me. And maybe it's like both a good thing to do things that you feel comfortable doing and you know exactly like how to go about it. Well, I've seen a deck similarly before i've edited a piece of writing like this Mm. before and at the same time it worries me that i'm just repeating myself Mm. but like with different words or with like a different contributor or a different illustration but technically still repeating myself
1: yeah that's one thing that i've gone a little bit better at whether it's good or not is up for deliberation but i used to not like to repeat myself and now it's like the reality of the situation is that a good message shouldn't just be limited by like the one time you've talked about it or said it right
0: sure yeah i mean i don't i don't think that oh everything you do has to be a struggle like everything you sit down and accomplish today is like fighting against your automation yeah but I do still want to be able to have new thoughts. Yeah. And to make something and feel like, oh, that was new for me yeah, to make it look this way or read this way.
1: Yeah. To wrap things up.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's a good place to wrap things up for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon.
0: Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice.
1: And this is Making It Up.